Well, I wanted Ben to read the whole chapter so that we are reminded of the context of what, of what we're studying, verses 19 to 24 this day. It's kind of neat, isn't it, to hear the Word of God and studying to the Gospel of John. It makes sense to us. It comes alive because we have studied it verse by verse. Well, to start this morning, let me take you all back to 9-11-2001, New York City. Um, all of you are aware the terrorist acts of September 11th of this past year, and I'm sure we'll all agree that they were acts of unspeakable evil. I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable that men would plan and execute the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. Right? I mean, they planned this, meticulously planned and executed the murder of even children. And I believe the events of 9-11 brought moral clarity to this nation. In one act, in one day, in that one act, the presence of evil, the reality of evil, was no longer a theological question. It was a reality. We were confronted with the images that we saw on TV. The question is, what was the source of that evil? Where Where did such evil come from? And the answer is, False religion. False religion. These unrepentant murderers, called martyrs by their followers, were committing these acts in the name of God, the name of religion, that they were acting as representatives of God. The events of that day awakened all of us to the evils of false religion. How false religion deceives people, leads people astray, and promotes such pride and self-righteousness that it causes causes its followers to kill for their religion. It reminds us and awakens us this truth that any religion, if not based completely on the person of Jesus Christ, is not benign. It's not harmless, it's not innocent, no. And I use this word very carefully. I thought this through several times. Any religion not based upon Jesus Christ is evil. The word is evil. False religions like Islam, the Roman Catholic Church, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Hinduism, and all other localized cults in this world are at the core corrupt and spiritually bankrupt. Now, I do not say this just because of 9-11. I say this because false religion is the cause behind the murder of God's Son. Not just the murder of several thousand men, women, and children last year. But false religion is behind the death, the murder of God's own Son. Consider the cross with me. For a minute, consider the cross. The sheer cruelty of the cross is unimaginable. We live in such a sheltered existence where such gruesome violence is not a part of our daily lives. So for us, we must take extra care to grasp the harsh reality of the cross that it was such a cruel and heinous mode of death. It was so cruel that no one wouldn't wish it for their worst enemies. The cross, Calvary, was the culmination of the intense hostility 
that the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, had against Jesus Christ. That is why he says in John 7, 7, The world hates me. And remember, the world there is not the secular world as we know it in our time, but the false religious world that reigned supreme in the time of Christ. The forces that led our Lord to the cross were not secular forces, but were religious and spiritual forces. Religious and spiritual forces crucified Christ. In short, Jesus was the victim of a false religious system. His war was not against the secular world, but against false religion. Roman heathenism could not have enacted the scene of the cross. Did you guys hear that? Roman heathenism could not have enacted that scene of the cross. The act of crucifying Christ was too wicked an act. Even for the Romans, consider Pontius Pilate a worldly leader, a secular leader, a compromising, cowardly man. He could not find it in his heart to crucify Christ. The worst he could do was slam, to, to flog him, to scourge him. And Pilate wanted to let him, let him go because he was innocent of all charges. So what if he claims to be the king of the Jews? So what if he claims to be the son of God? Crucify him for that? Such a heinous murder. Just because he claims to be son of God, let him go. We'll flog him so that he will learn his lesson. That's the worst he can commit against Christ. But in the hearts of the Pharisees, they would not be content with scourging. They would not be content with lashes on his back, spits on his face, and beatings with the uh, fists. No, they were not content until he was hung on a cross and he died. The religious bigotry saw more virtue in Barabbas than in Christ. Heathenism was and is incapable of such a cruel spirit. It was the Pharisaic world that hated Christ. And even today, the persecutions of the non-religious world are insignificant. When you go to college campuses, what persecutions do Christians face from the secular world? I mean, they you know, demean our faith, they denigrate the Bible... Right? They say the resurrection didn't occur, but hey, sticks and stones, right? They're all sticks and stones. They're, they're just words. Compared to the persecutions and the martyrdoms resulting from false religion, it is incomparable. Phariseeism is not the sin of the non-religious, but of religious parties. Mobs may be nagged on to cruel and wicked words, but they cannot and they will not plot and falsify against the innocent. The cruelest thing in this world is not in the secular world. It's in false religion that is void of God and empty of love. And that is why our Lord called the Pharisees hypocrites, whitewashed tombs, children of snakes, an evil and adulterous generation, and blind guides. He condemned them. He exposed their artificial, their synthetic, man-centered, man-created religion, exposed them, and exposes all false religions of all time. Exposes them as evil. And that is why they hated Christ. They hated Christ then, and they hate Christ now. 
I mean, even in their writings, their hatred is reflected. The, the Pharisees um, weren't content with the death of Christ. Even after Christ was crucified, they slandered and vilified him with their writings. Uh, maybe you guys heard of this book called the Talmud. It is a vast literary work written by Jewish rabbis. It contains the commentary on the Torah. These are collected writings of rabbis in the early uh, Israel history. It was written down uh, as, and its authority is almost as equal to the Old Testament. The Palestinian Talmud was written down in the 3rd century. So, these record what the rabbis of Jewish time, what they spoke, was written down in the 3rd century. And in the Talmud, the Talmud reveals the vehement hatred these Pharisees had towards Christ. To them, His name is so blasphemous that they did not even mention His name. Instead, they called Him that man. The carpenter, the son of a carpenter, the, the one who was hanged. They pray that may his name and memory be blotted out. The Talmud has many accusations against Christ. They call Jesus illegitimate, possessed by the soul of Esau and being Esau himself. Accuses him of being a fool and of being insane, of being a conjurer and a magician, an idolater, a seducer, crucified for his crimes. Thomas says that Jesus was buried in hell. And the final one, they accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker. They accuse him of being a Sabbath breaker. And that last was important. Because that last one touches upon this morning's text. The controversy that we find in verses 19 through 24. The accusation that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. Now, you know, John chapters 5 through 10 is called the period of controversy. Right? As soon as our Lord healed that man on the Sabbath in John chapter 5, the Pharisees were hell-bent on murdering Christ. And so everywhere He went, whatever He taught, whatever He did, controversy swirled around Him. But one issue, one controversy towered over all the others. The cup of controversy was full. This one made it overflow. And what was that controversy? It was a controversy surrounding his healing on the Sabbath. Nothing riled up the Pharisees more than when Christ healed people on the Sabbath. That was what cemented their hatred. Cemented their conspiracy to murder Christ. This is what made them conclude this man is not from God. John 9.16 This man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. To them, the Lord was undoubtedly a Sabbath breaker because he had publicly and deliberately healed people on Sabbath, on this particular day. Now it is amazing to me. It is amazing. In light of Christ words, His character, His miracles, how they could not see that they were the Sabbath breakers. That they were the transgressors of the laws of Moses. How was it possible that they could not see that Christ is the only one 
the only faithful Jew, the only true follower of Moses, the only fulfillment of the Old Testament commands, that he was the only one innocent, the only one who kept all the commands of God. How is it that they could not see their own hypocrisy, at the same time could not see the purity and righteousness of Christ? You know, I believe they had a particular disease. This is a particular disease that is common in religion called spiritual myopia. Hence the title of our sermon this morning, Spiritual Myopia. It is an eye condition, and we have several doctors in our church, so I have to be really careful here, right? If I don't get this right, I'm going to have like five people talking to me after service. You know, y'all's wrong. The journals, anyway, right? Myopia. It's a visual defect in which distant objects appear blurred because their images are focused in front of the retina rather than on it. Another term for this is nearsightedness. Myopia, maybe if you listen to Jim Rome, it is used in a figurative way, right? Or lack of discernment, lack of long-term perspective, lack of foresight. Well, these Pharisees had spiritual myopia and it was a willful condition. Very important. It wasn't like a call. They got it from someone else. It wasn't, they they received it from some contagious way. No, it was a willful condition on their part. Let me give you a current illustration of people with this exact same disease as these Pharisees. A current illustration. Reported by Newsweek, July 22, 2002. A fire started in an all-girls intermediate school in the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia, considered the most, the holiest city by Muslims. One of the teenage girls in the intermediate school, number 31, was sneaking a cigarette before classes. A hall monitor spotted her at the top of the stairs and she tossed the cigarette away in a trash bin. Twenty minutes later, teachers smelled smoke. One shouted fire. Panic ensued. Within seconds, flames swept throughout the school. About 750 girls from the ages of 13 through 17 poured into a single narrow stairwell. But the door at the bottom of the stairwell was locked and chained. The only person with the key, a male guard, had left on a menial errand. The electricity went off. The girls began to scream. They were suffocating and they were dying in the dark. Then it got worse. Firefighters and ambulances arrived quickly before anyone had died. But the Mutawa, this is an official office, office official governmental office, these are zealous Muslims who are, who are part of the sanctioned society for the promotion of virtue and prevention of vice. The Mutawa would not allow these men to break open the doors and enter the building to rescue these girls. Why not? Because it is their job to enforce head coverings for women and strict separation of the sexes. The fleeing girls left their scars behind and their would-be rescuers were men. They could not allow these men to set these girls free because they would see their faces. Some of the girls were forced to go back to their rooms 
to recover their scarves. When they were finally rescued, 40 girls were injured, and 15 girls died needlessly. That is moral outrage. This is unbelievable. The stupidity of these men, of these leaders, of these false religious leaders. There are these young girls suffocating, dying by a fire, and they're concerned about head coverings. It's a moral outrage. These girls, young girls died because of the stupidity and evil of a false religion. These men had spiritual myopia as well. Now, what if these leaders of vice and virtue were unrepentant? And after the rescue, they were angry at these girls and angry at the rescuers. What if they stood around and rebuked the firefighters for seeing these girls' faces while rescuing them from the burning building? What if they were prosecuting these men who rescued these girls for immorality and breaking their laws and sent them to prison? Unbelievable. These men, these leaders of the Mutawa, these men should be in jail. They are nearsighted. They're so focused on the letter of their laws, they can't see the big picture. They can't discern from what is insignificant to what is truly significant. And that is exactly what Jesus faced throughout His ministry with the Pharisees. That is exactly what He faced. Blatant and cemented myopia. Cemented hypocrisy. I want to take you to several passages passages in the Gospels to show the unbelievable hypocrisy and evil of these Pharisees. I mean, these verses will prove to us once and for all that our Lord did not break the law of Moses. He was not a Sabbath breaker. These leaders were the ones who broke the Sabbath. And no doubt, the New Testament church, these early Jewish Christians, when they read the book of John, and when they read the Gospels, they must have been so encouraged and so comforted because they were told constantly by their community that Jesus was a break, the lawbreaker, that He broke the Sabbath. To read these passages were, must have been such a comfort to them, knowing that their Lord fulfilled the commands of the law. Turn with me to four passages. first passage you want to look at is Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. These historical accounts vindicate Christ concerning the Sabbath. At the same time, they condemn these Jewish leaders. Mark chapter 3. One time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He asked this question, posed to the Pharisees, but they remained silent. Verse 5, He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Particularly striking is the emotion of Jesus. Look at this man's hand. Is it 
lawful to do good or evil, to save life or to kill. And he was angry at the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. They were much more concerned about the holiness of a day than about the well-being of humans. They were more concerned, rather, with self, their own self-righteousness, their own religion, than the will of God. You know, a parallel passage, don't turn there, is found in Matthew 12, 11 through 12. And Matthew there, in Matthew 12, records our, an extra question that Jesus gave, proposed to the Pharisees. He asked them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, our Lord concludes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Their rules were a terrible distortion of what the Sabbath should have been. Our Lord says, how much more valuable is a man than an animal? Therefore, it is lawful. And yet, even confronted with that, the Pharisees were still stubborn, will not repent, will not acknowledge the truthfulness of Christ's words. Turn with me to Luke 13. 10 through 17. Another occasion where our Lord deliberately healed a woman this time on the Sabbath. Luke 13, 10 through 17. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. For 18 years, she was bent over. She could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your, from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Now the synagogue ruler, who was a Pharisee, complained. His reasoning was, There are six days to heal. Why heal on the Sabbath? Lord, why don't you let her wait till Sunday? What's the urgency here? There are six other days to to do this miracle of healing. The Lord answered, You hypocrites. Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Now, it's not on the tax, but I bet. I'm not a bet, but my take is that our Lord saw this Pharisee do that in the morning. The same Pharisee did this work of untying his ox to lead it out to water. Right? You yourselves, you work. Right? Your animal is hungry. You don't say, oh, wait till Sunday. Your animal is thirsty. Oh, wait till tomorrow. No, you immediately take it out to get a drink of water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, Why should she wait one more day? Why? Why should she not be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? The Pharisees preferred seeing the woman labor with her infirmity rather than than seeing the labor of healing. Again, they would not repent. Next chapter, Luke 14, 1-6. This is amazing. A similar point is made here. One Sabbath, when Jesus went in to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. 
there in front of him was a man suffered from dropsy. Now, I, more medical terms here. This describes an abnormal accumulation of serous fluid in the body's connective tissue. It causes a man to become bloated. Our Lord asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They had just seen Christ heal this woman. They heard His reasoning. And they were again silent. They were speechless. Our Lord healed the man. And then He asked, this time, He says, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? Our Lord is saying, if this man was your son, wouldn't you heal him right now? You would do this for your own children, you would do this for your own animals. But because of spiritual myopia, you're nearsighted. You're so focused on the law that you don't see the purpose of the law to love God and to love one another. Unbelievable pride and self-righteousness. Verse 6, after our Lord heals, after our Lord declares His truth, they had nothing to say. They would not admit that they were wrong and that our Lord was right. The final text is our text for this morning. John 7, 21-24. Fourth account of our Lord discussing his healing on the Sabbath. Look at verse 21. You know, our Lord is down in Jerusalem. He is teaching in the temple, right in the middle of the Temple of Booths, Temple of uh, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Um, the crowd is agitated. They're asking him questions. And then in verse 27, Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. What miracle is our Lord referring to? It can only be one it is the miracle of the man in John chapter 5 who was infirmed, invalid for 38 years. Our Lord healed this man on the Sabbath. And our Lord says, I did this one miracle and you are all astonished. Now, what is the meaning of that word astonished? New American Standard, Revised Standard, New King James Version translate that word as marvel. I did one miracle and you all marvel. NIV is the only version where it translates it astonished. Now by the context, I think NIV gives the right sense of the word. But even then, the word choice is still too benign. The same word is used by Paul in Galatians 1.6 when he says, I am astonished you are quickly deserting Christ. The word here is not I did one miracle and you're amazed, you're marveling, you're surprised. No, I don't think that's the sense. But the context, the sense is, I did one miracle and you're angry. You're incredulous. You're indignant. You're shocked that I would do this on the Sabbath and you're angry with me. Look down in verse 23. I believe the context supports this translation. Why are you angry with me? The crowds, particularly the Pharisees, were angry with Christ. Not because that He would heal a man, but because He would heal on the Sabbath, on this particular day. Our Lord gives them a simple reasoning, verses 22 and 23. Moses gave you circumcision, therefore you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. 
Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? This is not rocket science. This is not physics, right? This is simple stuff. This is one plus one. Moses gave you two commands. First one was keep the Sabbath. Second one was circumcision. Well, people might say, well, circumcision came before Sabbath because it was given to Abraham. Well, no. Sabbath goes all the way back to creation, right? Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Well, nonetheless, God gave you two commands. But if a child is born on a Friday, and the command is a child is to be circumcised on the eighth day, and the eighth day lands on the Sabbath, you have no qualms about doing work, circumcising a child on this quote-unquote Sabbath. You work on Sabbath. Why are you angry with me? You destroy a part of a baby's body. I heal a man completely. I restore his whole body. He is invalid. He is infirm. He's a, he's a paralytic. And I heal his whole body and make him whole on the Sabbath. And why are you angry with me? He reveals and exposes their hypocrisy, their inconsistency in their own system. How according to their rules, their judgment of Christ and what He has done is not right. Very simple. Our Lord refers to this and He says in verse 24, Judge not the deed by mere appearances. Yes, I did a work on the Sabbath, without question. But judge it rightly. What kind of work was it? Consider that. It was a work of necessity. A work of mercy and compassion. In appearance, the Sabbath was broken. But in reality, it was not broken at all. Make a right and fair judgment. Well, they refused to make a right judgment. They continually were adamant in their conclusion that Christ was a Sabbath breaker. And it just strengthened their resolve to murder our Lord. The worst, the disastrous consequence of spiritual myopia is left untreated. Murdering of Christ. Crucifixion of Christ. Because they are so focused on their on their own laws, their own traditions, rather than the will of God. Well, from this controversy between Christ and the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath, concerning healing on the Sabbath, I think there's, there are many applications for us. Let me conclude by uh, playing the role of a spiritual doctor, of a spiritual optometrist, and give you some symptoms of spiritual myopia 2,000 years later in our context. Symptoms of spiritual myopia. The first symptom is when people won't repent, admit they're wrong before the Word of God. These Pharisees, they were clearly wrong. They were clearly wrong. And yet, because of their pride and stubbornness, they would not admit that. They would not admit that. You know, Dennis Prager has a book um, called Think a Second Time. It's a pretty good book. A social critic, highlighting social issues, political issues. He said he titled that book Think a Second Time 
Because so many people develop their worldview in their teenage years. That's the worst time to develop their worldview, right? But so many people develop their worldview in, in their teenage years based upon songs, based upon articles in magazines, based upon peers and things they heard on the radio and TV and movies. And then for the rest of their lives, they're committed to it. They will not move. They will not change. They will not repent. They're committed to their worldview that was formed in their teenage years. The book invites them to think again, to reinvestigate their views, and if they are wrong, to change their minds. Well, this applies to us. One symptom of myopia is an unwillingness to conform one's view to the Word of God. The unwillingness to eat your own words and say, you know what, I was wrong. I said that. I taught that. I believe that. But because of what I'm studying in the Bible, let God be true and every man a liar, I am wrong. But if you come before the Word of God, and you refuse to budge because of pride, symptom of spiritual myopia. Second symptom is involvement in Christianity merely as an outward form of religion. Involvement in Christianity as a, merely as an outward form of religion. Matthew twenty three twenty three. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You will give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. These guys are so zealous and radical about tithing that they tithe their condiments. Incredible. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Luke 11.42, a parallel version says, You do all this. You tithe, but you neglect the love of God. So in our context, it speaks of formal and external ritual of church attendance, of prayer, listening to sermons, going to Bible study, involvement in fellowship, but through it all, there is no passion for Christ. No zeal for souls. No sacrificing self for the cause of Christ and His kingdom. There is no law for others. Christianity is external religion. It is all outward formalism. And inside, it is empty. It is like that man, those two, two men in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector boasts about his faithfulness to his religion. He stands up in the temple and he prays about himself and he says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like these other men. I pray three times a day. I tithe. I am ritually clean. But the tax collector was in the corner, would not even raise his head. He beat his chest and he said, forgive me, a sinner. Second symptom of spiritual myopia is involvement in Christianity as a religion or you boast of your external accomplishments, your external merit badges, and the heart, it's empty. Third symptom of spiritual myopia, and it's really myopia, it's really like, you need thick glasses to see with this. The greatest concern is being seen by others as godly and righteous. 
your motivation for church attendance, your motivation for evangelism, your motivation for studying scripture, or everything you do in the church is to be seen by others, to have a reputation of godliness and righteousness. Matthew 23, 25, Woe you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Major symptom of spiritual myopia. Living to please man. Living to, be, living to be seen by others. Excelling at hypocrisy. Best hypocrite at Cornerstone. Academy Award for best acting job. It's being nearsighted. It's lack of discernment. Who cares what people think? Who cares what I think? Who cares what Bob thinks? We're just men. Why live to please other sinners? When... Psalm 139 says, a man's ways, man's life is in the clear view of God. That God sees a man's life clearly. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Isn't that myopic? I have to be so concerned about men and, and to forget that God sees all, that God knows all, that we are to live in light of God's light and God's presence. Fourth, Sign, symptom of spiritual myopia. This is cl- the classic symptom. You see this and you know right away this person has myopia. Love for the office and positions in the church. Loving the position. Loving leadership. Loving the offices, the titles in the church. That was the Pharisees, right? They loved being treated as leaders. They loved the perks. They loved having the best seats, the, the official titles, being called teachers, scribes, and then leaders of Israel. Luke eleven forty three. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. And, and this reveals, you know, and how do we know? You know, yes, we are to aspire to the office of the elder, right? We are to aspire to teach, aspire to lead. How can you know if you have the symptom or not? Symptom or not? Um, this, is, this, is, this will help you. It helps me. Luke eleven forty six. Jesus said, You experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. These people love to teach God's word. They were experts in the law. They loved to put burdens on people which they could hardly carry. But they didn't do anything to help people obey God's word. This is a sign of loving the office. If you love teaching, if you love leading the church, leading in the church, if you love the position, the authority, the act of teaching God's word, but if you do not love people, if you do not shepherd people, if you do not pray for them, if you do not get down and dirty with them in their lives and hold their hands and do the difficult work, the hard work of shepherding, then you love the office. You love the position. You're not really caring for the people you're teaching to. There are people like that in the church. We're like... Professors in school. 
my job is done, I'm out, I clock out. I'm a resource of knowledge, let me disseminate to you all my accumulated knowledge of the scriptures, and don't bother me, my work is done. There is a man, there is a person who loves the office, but does not love God's people. Fifth symptom, fifth and last symptom is, that's a classic one, spiritual pride. Spiritual pride. Boasting of uh, their affiliations to, other, to others. You know, what was the boast of the Pharisees? We are disciples of Moses. They love name dropping. Moses, Elijah, Isaiah. Right. Well, we have that in our body. You know, I belong to Cornerstone Bible Church. I'm a member of this Bible church. I have MacArthur's study Bible. I have right doctrine, right theology. Pride in being right. You know, boasting and being arrogant, self-confident that we have right doctrine, right theology. And we know we are right and they are all wrong. The issue is, do you obey right doctrine? That's what Christ was saying. Moses gave you the law, but none of you keeps it. Yes, you know the law, but do you keep it? That is the issue. Every one of you breaks it. That's the issue for us. Yes, we have right doctrine, but the issue is, do we obey right doctrine? Do we follow right biblical theology? Do we have right life? Do we have the character of gentleness, humility, and meekness? Character of graciousness. You know, I talked to one of our members several months ago. The person was, I'm trying to, I have to be very careful here. The person was saying, he was trying to get another person to come to our church, a fellow believer. And he was shocked by the response. That person will not come to Cornerstone. He said, I will never come to Cornerstone Bible Church. Why not? Because that person had a conversation with another member of our body. And that person said, the member was so spiritually prideful, was so arrogant about doctrine and theology. The person was so put off by the attitude by one of our members. The person said, I will never come to Cornerstone Bible Church. Look, you know, I'm not saying we need to be nice to everyone so that they'll come to our church, right? But what I am saying is, People ought not be, must not be offended by our attitudes, by our character. If they're offended by doctrine about Scripture, about the Word of God, so be it. But never because of us. Right? Are you one of those guys who love controversy? Love to argue about Scripture? Love to argue about theology? Love to pick doctrinal fights? But you forget the purpose of the law is to love God love one another. That these doctrines of grace were given to us to produce grace. Maybe I'm giving you guys a wrong example by the way I preach. I met a person recently and we had this good conversation. We had lunch together. And later on, I heard that person said, man, I was so surprised by James. Why? Man, he was so nice. (laughs) He was so gracious and kind. Right? I she was the person was shocked. Right? Well, you know why? Because people hear me preaching. 
This is what I, I'm preaching here. Right? I'm heralding the word of God. I'm declaring truth. But there's a pulpit here. This is what I'm, that's what the pulpit's here. But when I'm meeting you one-on-one, am I preaching to you? Am I yelling at you? Am I heralding the word of God? Right? If I'm confronting sin, if I'm sharing the gospel, yes. But as brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm just a regular fellow sinner saved by grace, loving Christ and loving you, and you loving me. Perhaps you've misinterpreted that example and you're thinking, well, this is what commitment to right doctrine is. You preach wherever you go. You take the pulpit with you, right? And whenever you, have, you, you face someone who disagrees, you put that pulpit down, you sit that person down, and you preach at them for an hour. Well, brothers and sisters, right, that's not the example of Christ. And I don't believe that's the example of the leaders at Cornerstone. If you have these symptoms, deal with them swiftly and quickly. Because again, there are disastrous consequences of spiritual myopia when left untreated. Where is the cure? The cure is in Christ. The cure is in Christ. Humble yourselves. Accept Christ's invitation to trust in Him and to follow in His paths. The Pharisees would not accept that they were evil. It was unbelievable to them. They hardened their hearts. What about you this morning? Will you soften your hearts? Will you even consider the possibility that yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are evil. Yes, we are focused on the letter of the law and missed out on the purpose, on the intent of the law. Will you open your eyes this day to see your own hypocrisy and at the same time see the beauty of Christ's holiness? Will you come to Him this morning? Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we study our Lord's confrontation with the Pharisees, we, we see the Lord's courage, Lord's meek faithfulness to you, God. At the same time, we see the evil and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and it's so difficult to, to study because we see ourselves, we see the Pharisees, Pharisaic attitudes, pride, hypocrisy in our own lives, in our own heart, in my own heart, where we see it. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts, the temptation to be prideful and to be stubborn is such a reality. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to, to lean towards Scripture with, with soft hearts where we would obey these truths and, and, and deal with our spiritual myopia so that, so that you'll be glorified in our lives and in our church. In Jesus' name.